in the New Testament in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, and we begin reading at verse 3. Paul has greeted the church (coughs) and he wants to tell them how dear they are to him and how he prays for them. And then he launches into one of the great statements about who is Jesus Christ. (coughs) We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard of it, and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day that we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience And joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.
May I read again three of those verses, 15, 16, and 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, each of those a description of angelic beings, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have supremacy or have first place. That is one of the most sublime descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want, uh, taking up those last five words, uh, to lay before you the truth. Jesus Christ has the supremacy. Jesus Christ is preeminent. The Christians at Colossae had this great problem, that they were preoccupied with secondary things. They gave themselves to studying angels and to praying to these angels, indeed to worshipping them. They latched on to certain days in the year and made them all important in the whole calendar to the neglect of others. They were interested in dreams in a big way. We too, in 21st century Scotland, may be tempted to get caught up and obsessed with these same secondary things. Perhaps dreams are big to some of our fellow believers. Certainly, some people can place the importance of a day in the year and put it all out of proportion. But there are other things, are there not, that while they may have some import, they are utterly secondary. What can we think of? Well, the maintenance of a church building, the decisions of the church court, the deacons or the elders or whoever, the conduct of our worship, the mood of our worship, the things we sing. There are scores of other things that we might put before us as, and give them 
such a position that they fill the horizon of our thinking. And what is, what is the outcome? Well, that we miss, we miss the one who is utterly supreme. And I want today to try and simply look at this description of Christ with the aim that he may so fill our thinking that we will want to give him supremacy, not just for this half hour, but for our lives. Now, let us then look at three ways in which he is described. The first is that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. <coughs> he is the image of the invisible God. The majesty of the Father is invisible to us. He is spirit. But equally, the whole character of God is incomprehensible to us. He dwells, says one of the apostles, in unapproachable light. And we can't get near him, either physically or even with our thinking. And yet, he has not left himself unknowable because he has made himself known in his Son, the Lord Jesus. He who has seen me, said Christ, has seen the Father. And Christ has come into this world uh, to, as it were, put the Father in focus. Philip said to Jesus, just before Jesus left, he said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long and, and you haven't got this? He who's seen me has seen the Father, that the Father is in me and I'm in him. And that's the wonderful thing which continues to be the case, that when we come to Jesus Christ, he brings God into view. So, let's see examples from Jesus' life. When you, when you see Jesus coming to a leper and touching the untouchable, the outcast, then you see something of the compassion of God. When you see Jesus speaking to a storm and rebuking the, the violence of the wind, and the great calm ensues. And when you hear Jesus speaking out with such a rebuke to the evil spirit that possessed the demoniac and the man becomes totally in his right mind, then there you see something of the power and the authority of the Father. When you watch Jesus going 
into the temple and turning over the money changers who were exploiting the poor. And there you're seeing something of the justice of God. When, when you see Jesus coming to a young man who was in love with his riches, and Jesus looking into his mind and sees who he is worshipping and says to him, you need to go and sell everything. And there you see Jesus knowing all that can be known. And he shows us how the Father is omniscient. You see, Jesus, he is the one who brings the Father close to us. He brings us the Father into our streets, into our living rooms, into our minds, and he makes the Father known. And when you come and see Jesus dying on a cross, you see everything about God. His goodness, his patience with us, his tender compassion, his holiness, and his love. So he is the image of the invisible God. Image, incidentally, we sometimes say of an image, well, it's, there's an image of a great statue or of a painting there, and we mean it's a copy and it's not the original. But that's not what is being meant here. He's speaking about image in the sense of the very thing itself. As it says elsewhere, Jesus bears the very stamp of his character on himself. The image of the invisible God. Are you getting to see him better through Jesus? Are you so loving to focus on Jesus, that you see the Father better than you used to. He is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, we see in the passage that Jesus is supreme in creation. And there are actually several things that the Lord that Paul goes on to express about the Lord here, and I've, I've divided the section up in, into these lines to show you the five different things that uh, we're told about Jesus as supreme over creation. May we just look at them as we go through. Jesus is, first of all, the firstborn over creation. Now, we talk about the firstborn in, in, in two different ways when we read the Bible. We, someone can be firstborn historically, biologically. You remember how Mary, she gave birth to her firstborn son and put him in a manger. And that's the way in which we quite often use the word firstborn. But the scriptures use the word firstborn also in quite another way. When Jesus, we say Jesus is firstborn of creation, we're talking about him being first over creation. Uh, God said that someone would sit on David's throne as the firstborn. I will make him, said God, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
And the firstborn was not just the one who was born first into a family, but he was the one who was given the great share of the family inheritance. And so it is that God has said to Jesus, I give you the nations. I give you the cosmos. It's yours. You have the ultimate right of first being the firstborn. Secondly, you see that he's not only the firstborn, but he's the creator. All things were created through him or by him. And Paul goes on to especially emphasize that he didn't only create the visible things that we can see around us, but that he created the angelic beings. And it seems that they had such a uh, study of the angels that they gave them different names. We don't exactly know why. Some were called powers, some were called authorities, some rulers, but these were the angels, some of whom had fallen, fallen in total rebellion. Well now, Jesus is the creator of things visible and invisible, and as creator, he is the owner. He owns the whole, whole universe. And uh, I like this saying of a famous Dutchman, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. And that's it. It all belongs to Jesus. And you see, all of you belong to him. Your, your physical body, your, your intellect, your inner being, your desires. You may act in rebellion against him, but he is the owner. Do you recognize that? He owns your hobbies. He owns your home. He owns the places of special fascination for you in nature. They're all his. Thirdly, he is the goal of creation. Do you see that? He doesn't, he didn't, all things were not only created through him, but they were created for him. That is, everything that has been made by the Lord was made for this purpose, that it might point to Christ and that he might be elevated because of it. So that the things about us, they're there to praise God. Let the rivers clap their hands, it says. And let the hills rejoice. Let the fields be jubilant. 
and the trees of the forest sing for joy. Because this world about us, it's for him. And not only that, but even unbelieving people, maybe often unknowingly, the things they do are for him, the, the artistry they create, the music they make, the communications that they can provide. These are for him. The scientific investigations and advancements, it's all for Jesus. So it's for him. So he is the firstborn, he's the creator, he's the goal. You see also that he's the pre-existent one. He's before all things. If, if you're familiar with the people who worship in the Kingdom Hall, you'll know that the Jehovah's Witnesses latch on to the idea of Jesus being the firstborn, as it says in, in this passage, and say, well, if he's firstborn, he's just a creature like the rest of us. And they fail to see that the word firstborn is used in different ways. But here we see that their error is exposed. He is before all things. That is, he is before all created things. He predates the creation. And as such, he has supremacy over it. The Lord Jesus Christ is the pre-existent one. And then finally we see that in him all things hold together. In thing. In him, the world is kept going. You see, if it wasn't for Jesus upholding the universe by his world of power, then this afternoon the whole thing would, would unravel. Jesus is the upholder of the universe. And uh, he's upholding you and me, giving us breath, marking out the length of our days. In him we hold together. Sparrows and human beings alike are upheld by Christ. He upholds the universe. Well, that's the second great department of his supremacy. He is the image of the invisible God. He's supreme in creation. And now I want us to close by seeing that he is supreme in the church. And there are three things here you'll notice as we go through. The first is that he is the head. We are individually members. If you're believing in Jesus this morning, you are a member of the body of Christ. But he is the head. He is the authority. He is the source of life. He is the one that stimulates the other members of the body. And we belong to him. He is the ruler. He is the governor. Not, I may say, pastors, teachers, deacons. They are, are merely delegates. They've been delegated to lead congregations worldwide. But he, Jesus, is king and head of the church. Next, you see that he is the beginning. That is, the church totally came into existence 
because of Christ. He is the one who gave us on that day of Pentecost the beginnings of his body being made. And we thank him for the church to which we belong, both locally and worldwide from all the tribes and nations of, of, of this globe. He is the beginning. And he is, incidentally, the beginning for you personally. He is the author or the pioneer of your salvation. And everything you've got, your faith, your repentance, your progress, your new life, it's all gifted from him who is the beginning. And then lastly, on this uh, little summary of, of the Lord Jesus in his supremacy, he is the firstborn from the dead. And this is the wonder of our existence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, clearly, he, he, um, people might say, well, he wasn't the first to rise. There was Lazarus and, and there was, there was um, the widow of Nain's son and so on. And yes, indeed. But the thing is, he is the first to rise with that glorious spiritual body which simply could not die again. And that's the glory of him being the firstborn. And, and you realize, by implication, he's the firstborn? And you and I, we follow in him? He, he is the pledge of our rising to that glorious, spiritual, imperishable body that we will have in the glory. And on the final day when, when Jesus returns, he will speak to those whose bodies are in the tombs and to the bodies that have drowned in the oceans. And he will summon them up and disintegrated corpses will be united with the spirits of just men and women who've been perfected in him. And the prospect of being with these glorious bodies in Christ is just staggering. So he is supreme in the church. Now, Here's the, th here's, here's the question. Is he supreme for you, brothers and sisters in, in the Lord Jesus? Several occasions in Scripture, people make reference to how much greater Jesus is. So, he talking about one who was regarded as the wisest in Israel, Solomon, with all his proverbs and intellect. And Jesus says, there's someone greater than Solomon. And he was referring to himself with wisdom that far exceeds even the giant, the most giant intellect. Or here's 
John the Baptist, the preacher that went ahead of Jesus, and people asked him, are you the one that we're expecting? And he said emphatically, no, I must get less and he must be greater. Or to the Jewish leaders who looked to Abraham as the great ancestor, the father of the faithful, and Jesus told them, listen, Abraham anticipated my coming. And they said, oh, are you greater than Abraham? And of course he was. Or we could go on. We could speak about him being greater than the angels, as they tell us. Greater than Moses, the lawgiver. Greater, and that means that for those of us who, who, who long to live a life of obedience to the law, but that's all we do. We simply live in obedience to the law. Can you not see that Jesus is greater far than that? Greater in every way. Does he have the greatness in your life? Is he utterly preeminent? It's a sad thing when people become Christians and they'll talk about almost anything except Jesus. Have you, have you experienced that? They'll talk about God. They'll talk even about their faith. They'll talk about the church they belong to. They'll talk about many things in, in connection with Christianity. But it, it's almost as if Jesus is the great unmentionable. And I, I want us to go from here seeing what this is telling us. He is utterly supreme. And if there's some of you here who have never truly known Jesus Christ, can I just leave you with two things, which I hope will encourage you to follow him for the whole of your life. The first is, by his right as creator and owner, he says, you're mine. You belong to me. And if you, if you won't yield to me as supreme, then, well, you're stolen property. Go, come to me, says Christ. I am your rightful owner. I, I say to you, hold me as foremost in your life. That he might be supreme. And the second thing I want to say to you is this. It says here in the verse before the ones we considered, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. 
And I, I say to you, there's nothing in your past that is so, so gross, so shameful, so apparently contradictory to God's ways. There's nothing there that he is not eager to erase, to put behind him, and to forgive you through his blood. And if you've been holding back simply because you think you're disqualified, I want you to see that that's a total lie. Will you have him as the supreme one? He longs to have you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the good news of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that 